You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Nicole Callahan and Jamie Fontaine. Um, uh, whoops. So we're very excited about that. <laughs> I know, when you go off script and then you look down at what you have written, you're like, oh, I did that incorrectly. Um, so after everyone reads, um, we'll have a Q&A, and then there will be time to mingle and buy books from the press. I want to remind everyone that we podcast Writers Live events, so during the q and I'll come around with a microphone, so if you'll just wait while I'm trotting around the room, that would be great, just so we can hear you for the podcast. Um, and I am going to hand this over to Ian Anderson from Mason Jar Press, or Michael Tager. I was told one of them would be talking to welcome you. <laughs> Hi. Normally I make uh, Ian do this, so, but there's some miscommunication between us. Um, so yeah, we're based in Jar Press. I know a lot of the faces in the audience. Not everyone, so that's good. Welcome people I don't know. And we're just a local independent press. We've been around for three years, and we are super excited to have uh, Danny Kane here from Kansas. Uh, he came a long way. And then we also have Jamie Fontaine and Nicole Hallahan from New York and Philly, respectively. Uh, we started as a Baltimore-only press, and we're slowly expanding. Uh, the goal is eventual worldwide domination, but we are not there yet um, with your help. So that's really all I have to say. I want to invite our 2020 editor and Mason Jar author Justin Sanders. He's going to be the MC for the night, and he is much better than me and probably well prepared. So Justin, <laughs> why don't you come up? It would be a shock to everybody, including myself, if I was like, I'm so prepared for this. Um, Well, first, thanks all of you for coming tonight. Um, oops, should I be there? Yeah. Normally I'm very loud and I don't really care about microphones, but um, thank you, seriously, because it's a very cool choice you guys made to spend your time tonight listening to words and meeting writers. Like, that's really an awesome thing to, like, you know, keep doing that. We, there's a lot of stuff we could be choosing doing, including, like, having our binges, right, you know? Everybody's got their Netflix shows. I'm knee-deep in trash television myself. So this is really cool. All right. Um, I have three really great authors for you guys tonight. Uh, I'm going to start this off by bringing up Nicole Callahan, who writes poems and stories. 
Her poetry books include Superloop from 2014 and Translucence with I say this correctly, Samar Abdul-Jabbar uh, in 2018. And the chat books, A Study in Spring with Zoe Ryder-White in 2015, The Deeply Flawed Human in 2016, Downtown in 2017, and Aging in 2018. God damn, that's prolific. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, this is normally where I throw in a personal detail. It's my first time meeting Nicole tonight, so let's all be enchanted by her words. Nicole, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, this is great. Um, thanks, Ian and Michael. Um, so I'm going to read um, from my novella, The Couples, that is coming out. And then I'm going to read one poem. Um, when are the novellas coming out? July 16th. July 16th. So, um, and, Ma- and Mason Jar is publishing like a box set of, um, with with Jamie and Tomas Moniz and my um, novellas, so you should purchase them. They're available for pre-order. After the storm passes, white balls of hail and stripped off branches bob in the swimming pool. Calls and texts start coming in from the people who won't be able to come to the party after all. The poets from Pittsburgh's plane got canceled, The neighbors are dealing with their own tree issues. James and Brad turned around on I-95 when they heard the weather report. The power in town is gone, but Duke's generator purrs, and their house alone has light. Sounds like it'll just be us couples, Isla says, and us kids, says Sylvie, and me, says Bianca, in case anyone needs to be saved. Mom, Sylvie says, I think this must be a good sign. It's like snowing in June, but it's hailing in July. Julia refrains from stories about the apocalypse. Can we go play in it? Sure, Julia says. I don't see why not. Like in Oklahoma, the sky turned as quickly from bad to good as it had turned to bad. Julia had always, has always found this to be the most disorienting, the calm after the storm. During storms, your body goes into survival mode. But what do you do with a body that has survived? Birthday beer, Frank asks. How can I resist, says Julia. The children are in the yard screaming and laughing, slipping and sliding on balls of hail. Bring it in 42 with a bang, Frank says. They toast, sip their beers, and she looks at his thick, dark hair. He has fewer grays than the other men. The women, of course, have no gray. Isla and Diane, with their braids, have gone out onto the back patio to smoke pot, probably. Julia imagines how they must have danced when she passed out on the couch the night before. Isla, who forever smelled of coconut oil, who was waiting for her period like a teenage girl. Diane, so crass but so unsure in her body, who Frank had confessed to Julia one night never really wanted sex and only gave in every month or so and then only under the strictest parameters. The basement fills with light again as the clouds move out to the sea. How much do you think love has to do with anything, Frank asks. Love? Are you already high? No, I'm not already high. I mean, maybe a little, but I'm serious. 
How much do you think love matters and how much is it just going through the motions? The motions, the motion of a tree falling, a body pressing against another body in a bar bathroom, the lean of Jenny towards Duke, the soap on the sponge, the forever motion of cleaning the plate before putting it into the machine. Can I kiss you, Frank says. What? Come on, just a little birthday kiss. You're crazy. Me? Julia, Duke yells from upstairs. What the hell are the kids doing playing outside? What? You heard me, it's still dangerous out. Branches are falling everywhere. Why would anyone think it's a good idea to send a bunch of kids outside to play? Uh Uh-oh, Frank mouths, someone's in trouble. Julia takes another sip of her beer and Frank leans in to kiss her, getting just the side of her mouth. Frank, she says. Coming, she says to Duke. Julia takes the stairs two at a time. Hey, she says when she sees him, it's not that big of a deal. It is a big deal. Do you ever fucking think before you do anything? Yes, she says, I do. I think all the time. I'm so stuck inside my head, I don't even know how to get out. Maybe you should think about someone besides yourself sometime. What did it even mean to be in the head? That blue bowl filling and emptying, emptying and filling, the unwashed plate washed. Was it even the head, the heart? Not the heart, something more like the soul, some unsayable entity. Was this just the state of being a woman? The washing, unwashing, the shower, hot towels, cold slurpy, getting older, cup of tea, endless cups of tea, the wine, endless, filling and emptying, and the body, all the things that can be done to a body, how the body can be undone, endless bathrooms, parking lots, well-made beds, a child laughing just before she slips on the ice, just before the blood pushes out of the skin. If I told you all my secrets, would you leave me? If I traced all the words onto your back with my finger, wrote pine and longing and gone, would you understand me more? And this one is crying, and this one is laughing, and this one is driving to the market for flowers, but the road is closed, the tree is down. You might be trapped in your big, pretty house with your tiny little life forever, or just trapped in your body, strange body. How you stand in front of the mirror and call yourself the names women call themselves, whore, fat, crazy, stupid, the names women call each other. How you try to reprimand yourself Be kind, you say. Fuck you, you say. How you try to make your daughters different from you. Of course they'll be different from you. They have a real father. They have a real mother. If you are real, are you real? You are hardly real. You are too real. You are not real enough. Must you get outside of your head, your body, or must you go in, all those stars filling you, your eyes, your mouth, your impossible head. Um, and here's a poem. Though that sort of veered, and it kind of felt like I was reading a poem there for a minute. It's usually more narrative, but there's a lot of dialogue, which is hard to read, I decided, today, <laughs> in the hotel room. This is called The Stick. 
At the mouth of the cave was a stick. These are the things I did with the stick. Chewed it, waved it to the sky, poked myself in the eye, pretended it was a daisy, pretended it was an orchid, a tulip, lily, cigarette, made it into a gun and shot my brother, nudged my brother to make sure he was dead, nudged my brother to make sure he wasn't dead, licked it like a lollipop, sang into it like a microphone, brushed my hair with it, brushed my tongue, gagged myself with it, gagged myself again, made myself throw up, made myself cry, made myself look pretty, made myself sit in the car alone, made myself practice writing my first name with the last name of a boy I loved, whipped my knuckles with it, my thighs, dug little stars into my forearm, tried to beat off a man, tried to beat him harder, tried to use it as a megaphone, tried to pry my mouth open and say the words out loud, made it into a calculus equation, an airplane, a gun again, pointed it to the sky, prayed over it, moved to Brooklyn with it, took it to the bar, punished it, ignored it, pretended it wasn't mine, put it in the corner of that dirty little apartment on 12th Street, let the cat piss on it, wrote bad poems about it, slept with it, let it touch me in places I had never been touched, let it scratch the very itch it made, took it to a candle-lit dinner, packed it up into a U-Haul, turned it into an altar for my wedding, danced with it instead of with my father, took it on my honeymoon, didn't breathe a word of it to my husband, shoved it to the back of the drunk drawer in our new home, forgot where I put it, searched for it, found it only after I forgot I was looking, let it accompany me to the hospital, bit on it while the baby was being born, bit on it while the next baby, the sick one, was being aborted, bit on it while the littlest was born, tried to prod myself awake. My God, I was tired. All those years of nursing, of thermometers and back rubs and mommy, mommy, don't go. Started sleeping with it under my pillow, took it to therapy, gave it a name, hid it behind my back when my husband walked in, danced with it, wrote it an inappropriate email, wished I had buried it by the mouth of the cave when I still remembered where the cave was, used it to call my mother to see if she remembered the cave, turned it into a peace offering, until finally I tied a string to it and dangled the string into the river. There, after 1,000 years, I caught a fish, but the fish was too small, so I threw it back in. Paul Callahan, that was amazing. Absolutely amazing. Do you guys like novellas? Yeah. Yeah? Awesome, awesome. Will now, right? Yeah. If you don't, you will. Um, I always think that they're just like, I have this really stupid writer theory, but the smaller of a space you have to work in, it just feels like to me it gets more complicated to accomplish it, right? To really make it work, to pull it all together. It gets more like more and more like a little watch, right? You know, novellas are a form that just fucking elude me. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's simultaneously like a short story. I'm like, all right, cool. I can, you know, I can play with that. I can tinker. A novel, I have enough space to screw around, right? A novella, there's something about 
driving those characters through that arc. That's tough. So it's really, really cool what these writers have accomplished in these things. I told this next person she was going to go uh, first, and then I sprung that actually she went second because I called the wrong name. Um, <laughs> but I could not bring in somebody that, like, just I'm so thrilled for you guys to hear. Uh, read her bio. Jamie Fontaine was raised by wolves. Her work has appeared in places like JMWW, Paper Darts, X-Ray, and Barrel House, where she writes the Fountain of Advice column. The Fountain of Advice column. She lives in Philadelphia, where she co-hosts the fucking fantabulous Tire Fire reading series with Mike Ingram at Tattooed Mom. She is really, really cool. Uh, I consider her very much to be the leader of the literary A-team around here. Jamie Fountain. Justin is one of my favorite people on earth. Um, And I don't think he called my name second by accident, but... It did give me time to pull a series of random pages out of a manuscript in my bag. So let's see how this goes. Manhunt is really just hide-and-seek with teams, capture the flag without a flag. We play at night, numbers dwindling in the dark. Emily almost never plays. Her dad wants her in before nine no matter what. With Lauren, it depends on how her mom is feeling. My mom never cares how late I'm out. I'm grateful for the freedom. I'm always in until the end. The winner is whoever's caught last, or maybe it's the hunter. The boys from our block and the next one over take turns being in. They prefer things stacked in their favor. When you're caught, you join the hunt. A lot of times, it's just me against those boys, a pack of them searching in the shadows. A couple nights ago, I hid up in the tree in my front yard, breathing shallow until everybody else was found. It felt like I was practicing for real danger, like when I was little and my mom made me memorize our address and phone number to tell the police if somebody in a van grabbed me off the playground. Okay, we give up, they yelled. I waited another couple minutes before shimmying down the tree to sneak up behind them. Boo, I said. I went. There's this guy driving around showing girls his dick. He wears a ski mask so he can look at you while he does it, and just a t-shirt and basketball shorts, like a burglar who's going to the gym. The news makes it out like there's a dangerous predator on the loose, but he never gets out of the car. He never touches anyone. We mostly think it's funny. He drives up to you like he's going to ask a question with just flopped over his shorts, not even hard or anything. Lauren saw it first. Is that what they really look like? Was that normal? She has two sisters. Her dad's one of those guys who keeps his shoes on in the house. Why would you go up to the car? Emily has the earliest curfew. Her oldest brother joined the army after graduation last year when he knocked up his girlfriend. I never saw one before, Lauren said. I was curious. No one else will admit to seeing one either, although I know anyone with a dad or a brother has high enough odds. Most of my mom's boyfriends have been pretty careful, but not so careful that I don't have a general idea. I wouldn't explain it that way, or at all, really. It's easier to stay quiet than it is to talk about my mom. When she's single, my mother goes out with the girls from work. Men don't grow on trees, she says. They grow in bars, in line at the bank where she works, at the gas station where she used to get her car inspected before she and Scott broke up. They grow older, wider, meaner, tired of her. They grow apart. If she comes home still single, my mother is honest, tipsy. I just miss the feeling of a man on top of me, she'll say. It's so hard to sleep alone. When I was little, I used to have these nightmares about her disappearing, getting into some car and never coming back. I never bothered telling her. She'd be upset about the wrong thing. I'd just go into the living room if it was late enough and turn the TV on real low so it didn't wake her. 
I guess I spooked a boyfriend enough asleep on the couch in my nightshirt that a little TV showed up in my room one day. Wasn't that nice of him? She beamed. She's the kind of person who adapts to a broken thing instead of figuring out how to fix it. When she's single, my mother will climb into bed with me when she thinks I'm asleep. I can tell she's disappointed that I've started to face the wall because it means she has to be the big spoon, the protector instead of the protected. I wait until I can slide down the length of my twin bed and sneak out into the living room to sleep on the couch, facing the door, until the infomercials turn to news. We brought a Ziploc bag of change we'd scrounged from our, cloud, our couches and our parents' cars to buy ices. I always mix the blue raspberry and the Coke ones together. It turns my tongue a dark bruised purple, almost black, and no one ever asks to share. We're trying to be polite about paying with change, counting it out ahead of time, knowing how much the tax will be, but the guy at the register still looks at us like we're assholes. I don't think he's a teenager, but he's not old. He's skinny in the way that a lot of guys are before they get fat. He's got brown eyes, a month-old buzz cut, some zits. He's not special. What are you looking at? He asks. Nothing, I say. If you stare at a man and don't break eye contact, a grown one especially, it makes them nervous. There's nothing a man can do to you for looking at him that way, not in front of people. We'll stop, he says, but I don't. I just smile and slide the pile of nickels and dimes toward him. I bet he's the flasher, I say as we leave. Ew, no. I hope it's my brother's friend, Eric. He's really cute. You're not supposed to have a crush on the flasher. But I want to see some stranger's dick. That's the whole point. You're not supposed to want it. Everyone says you stuff your bra. Jason and I are hiding between my shed and the neighbor's compost pile. Who's everyone? Everybody. It's dark, but I can tell that he sees the look on my face. He quiets. Well, do you? No, come on. Then show me. I blush. It's dark. How will you be able to see? Okay, let me touch him. Over the shirt? Under. I know some girls get boyfriends in, like, fifth grade, but no one's ever tried to touch me before, not even as a joke. I move closer. You can't tell anyone. He nods in agreement and slips his hand under my shirt, moves his face close to mine. Do you want me to kiss you? In movies, things always slow down for people kissing, but it doesn't happen in real life. My heart beats fast, and his face is on my face, and then his tongue is in my mouth. I hear a rustle and pull away, maybe too quickly. He looks hurt until he hears it, too. He keeps his hands under my shirt, pushing me closer against the wall. Two of the littler kids run through the alley laughing. We stay until they pass, his hands still on me, snaking beneath the underwire of my bra. I knew you didn't. No one will admit that I'm right about the flasher, but when he's working, no one else will go to the counter. Lauren, who seems a little too interested, figured out a schedule, so we stop going on Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday afternoons or Saturday mornings, at least as a group. I still have to go sometimes for my mom if we run out of milk or whatever and she doesn't feel like grocery shopping. I swipe $5 from her purse for breakfast, maybe a snack, too, if I plan it right. He's at the register, shuffling newspapers around, trying not to make eye contact. I stare at him until he does. What's your problem? I don't have one. You have a staring problem. I think for a second about telling him that I know who he is and what he's been doing or yelling, Flasher! But who would believe me? I reach into the racks beneath the counter and take a mounds bar, confident, though it's not what I wanted. I pull the seam of the plastic, shove in a bite, daring him to charge me, never breaking eye contact. But he doesn't. He doesn't say a word. He watches me eat that candy bar, that sweaty slab of sunscreen-flavored soap in three bites, and he puts my milk in the bag next to that little box of powdered donuts, and he lets me walk away. 
Mom is at Jeff's. Emily's dad is back in town. Matt went to the shore for the week. We've never done this inside before. I don't usually have people over. I let Jason in through the back. I never thought about what your house looked like. He surveys the kitchen, the dingy countertops that never look clean, the old microwave, the sink full of glasses. Neither do I. Let's go to my room. I've never been to Jason's. I bet it's clean inside. His mom seems like she probably collects something dumb, like chickens or teapots, something useless. His dad probably sits in the same chair every night. Oh, cool, you got a TV in here. We could put a movie on if you want. He shuffles through the stack of videos. I kick some laundry under the bed while he looks, yank my sheets into order. I should have tidied up first. He comes up behind me and puts his hand up the back of my shirt, his face near my ear. My cousin says you just have to flick it. My bra pops open. I face him. He's grinning like an idiot. How jealous would your friend be right now? Figuring out how to unhook my bra has made him too confident. I lean back, just out of reach. He whines. Leave her alone, I say. Or what? I tug my shirt down. He reaches for the hem. Fine, he says. I lift my arms as he pulls up my shirt. My bra slides down my arms and onto the floor. He stares, just for a second. You take yours off too, I say, not knowing what comes next. It's only fair. I've seen him with his shirt off before at the pool and when he got sweaty riding bikes, but this is different. I asked for it. I reach out to touch his shoulders like we're at a dance. He kisses me and our skin presses together. He's warm, but not sweaty. Our teeth click. I pull my face away. He nods toward the bed. I lie down and he gets on top of me. The weight of him is not unpleasant. I don't feel trapped. It's something else. Safety, maybe. Jamie Fontaine, that's what I'm talking about. I love it when your words come together. That's an 18 joke. Right by it. All right. Uh, Danny Kane, if you don't know Danny Kane, you better ask somebody. Danny Kane is the author of the chapbook Uncle Harold's Maxwell House Haggadah. His poetry has appeared in Hobart, Mid American Review, Diagram, and New Ohio Review, among other places. He received an MFA in poetry from the University of Kansas in 2017. Hell yeah. He hails from Cleveland and lives in Lawrence, Kansas, where he owns the Raven Bookstore. That's cool as hell. Danny Goddamn Kane. I'm so happy to be here. I've never been to Baltimore or Maryland before, I don't think. I've already had a delicious combination of seafood mayonnaise and Old Bay, so I feel like I've figured something out at least. Um, it was it was very good. Um, this is Continental Breakfast. It's the title poem from my collection um, from the one and only Mason Jar Press. Woo. Continental Breakfast. All the waffles in Texas are shaped like Texas. All the waffles in Ohio are shaped like waffles. At your basic town place sweets, expect egg patties with fake yellow yolks. Spring Hill sweets go for scrambled eggs. Nothing a Tabasco bath can't fix. In the Colorado Springs Hampton Inn parking lot, my Boy Scout troop looked up third floor window, a volleyball team showing us their cotton underwear. They closed the curtains laughing. I missed it, was looking somewhere else. Never get in line for waffles behind a family with more than two children. A residence inn will rotate two hot dishes, turkey sausage patties, biscuits, or this pretty good home fries stuff with peppers and onions. 
In the Pasadena La Quinta, I accidentally kissed Tina after a power hour with Mike's hard limeade 40s because we didn't like beer yet. In the morning, she cried by the juice machine. The key to those little milks is really squeezing hard before you push up. At the Best Western in Nashville, breakfast is in the bar. My brother loved this as much as he loved watching last night's sad Stetson strumming a Telecaster for tips in the same room. At the Garden City Americ Inn, I spent most of Christmas night watching Chip and Joanna as Applebee's lights bled through the blackouts. How many yogurts can you fit in your purse? And how far down I-70 before they turn? At the Super 8 in Clearfield, Kara told me to look at the parking lot billboard rabbits, but I just kept watching the Too Cute Marathon. Later that year, we got married in a Hyatt. For rest stop or for off-ramp in hunger and in saran-wrapped red delicious apples and bananas if I'm lucky. Toast the English muffin. Put the sausage and egg patty in it. Then put the whole thing in a napkin in your pocket. I may not know much, but I know it's five hours to Terre Haute and they've got a pretty good Fazoli's. I may not know much, but I did stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night. Um, recently, a funny thing happened in, um, in Kansas. Um, we have really regressive alcohol laws out there. And as of April 1st this year, was the first time grocery stores were allowed to sell full-strength beer. Like, Kansas was a 3-2 beer state um, until 2019. And so to celebrate um, the addition of full-strength beer to grocery stores, Budweiser sent their Clydesdales to Lawrence, Kansas. Um, and I, uh, people lined up for this shit for hours. I saw children holding Clydesdale stuffed animals. It was like a parade. It was busier than a parade. And it's basically just a giant smelly billboard. Um, so naturally, I have a poem I really wanted the horses to see, so I printed it on a t-shirt. Um, they ignored me. I guess horses can't read. But I can share the poem with you tonight. It's called, The Ideal Budweiser Customer Watches a Budweiser Commercial. Oh shit, I love landslide. I was going to get up to piss, but then I heard me some Fleetwood Mac. Hey, that's a pretty farm, too. Farms are dope. Wait, oh goddamn, it's a baby horse lying in some fucking sawdust. That baby horse is so cute, I can't even handle it right now. I am literally unsure how to proceed. And now the horse is being fed from a bottle? The hell am I supposed to do with that? Damn it, now the horse and the dude are playing and stuff. Fuck me if I don't love a playful goddamn horse. Look, a Budweiser truck. Budweiser. I should like this brand on Facebook. I should follow this brand on Twitter. I really should make an effort to engage with this brand on social media. Wait, that's a horse trailer. And our dude is shaking hands with the driver? Is he? Dude, you can't sell that fucking horse. You're going to miss him so much. He's your frolicking buddy. What the hell, bro? Bum me out. Uh-oh. Clydesdale parade. In a city. And there's our guy. And could that possibly be? Oh, man. The horse didn't see our dude because he's wearing blinders. This commercial makes me want to die. <laughs> but Wait. You put that Ford F-150 King Ranch back in park this instant because here comes your horse in slow-mo HD galloping down the fucking street because he remembered you. Somebody give me a Budweiser. Um, here's a, a small dispatch from my, um, my miserable years as a high school teacher. Uh, I guess it's not a funny poem, um, I, but I guess it goes some way to explain why um, it was miserable. It's called Lockdown. Blake got shifty during lockdown drills. 
Not the imagined gunmen, the real drug dogs snarling the halls. With the right class, one that can get through a lockdown without fucking off, you could hear the sniffs. Once, a bark. Lights off, curtains closed. The door's only locked from the outside. One year, we had to open the door, hand out with a key, and twist. Blake often disappeared for a few days after lockdowns. The next year, we forgot the doors and worried about ringtones. Kids disappeared a lot. The principal had a different strategy every year. Throw a desk through the windows and run. The principal never told us why the kids disappeared. Cover the slit window and the door with construction paper. First Taylor and third Taylor both disappeared. A runner came to fetch Michael for the office. Michael wouldn't get up. The runner shrugged and left. One year, a set of code names to recite over the PA. Unless the message comes from Wildcat, ignore it. Do not tell this to the students. The principal came to the door. Michael, it's time to come to my office. Michael's eyes iced. Principal, Danny, take your class for a walk. If you see Coach Murphy, send him down here. Tori disappeared twice, before and after the essay she said was fiction about her dad throwing her down the stairs. I wondered about every window. I wondered about every sweatshirt. Guns, sure, but also scratches, bruises, bellies. Sometimes I looked in the window and saw threats. Sometimes in the winter, when 6.30 looked like ink, I looked in the windows and saw only myself in an empty classroom. When I started Continental Breakfast, I didn't know um, what it was about. I just kind of started writing poems like, about what I looked just like funny shit. So the Budweiser poem, that was actually the first poem I ever published. Um, and for a while, it was just a pile of poems that I thought were funny or weird. And then eventually kind of this theme emerged. And this is about, the book is about... Um, living, traveling, loving, and worshiping in a Midwestern landscape that's completely controlled by brands, um, like a hyper-realistic, late capitalist um, dystopia, except it's real life. Um, so sometimes the brands are chain restaurants or chain hotels. Sometimes the brands are celebrities. Sometimes the brand is American gun culture. Uh, sometimes a celebrity and a brand will team up to do something uniquely terrible. Uh, like the time that the band, the Irish rock band U2 decided to give everybody in the world a free copy of their album. Um, anybody with an iTunes account woke up that morning to an, a U2 album they presumably didn't much want. Um, and so that morning when I woke up, I deleted the album and then I wrote this poem. It's called Bono Rings My Doorbell. All is quiet. I know you're in there, Bono says. I saw the blinds move. Just open the door and let me give you our new record for free. <laughs> Go away, I say. I can't, he says. Why not, I say. He says, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. <laughs> what I'm looking for is getting this record to as many people as possible. He rings the doorbell again. Danny, there's no use hiding, he says. I will follow you until you take it, he says. I will follow. I say, how the fuck do you know my name? He says... I move in mysterious ways. I say, that's not funny. He says, in the name of love, open the door. I say, not funny either. He tries the knob. I jam a chair against the door. He tries the knob harder. I call the cops. I tell the dispatcher what's going on. She says, the album is actually pretty good. I text Kara and tell her I'm safe. I'll be in touch soon. I grab my favorite box of 45s and crawl out the window into the backyard and run. It's a beautiful day. And I want to run. I want to hide. I want to tear down the walls that hold me inside. And when I go there, I'll go there without you and without your stupid record, Bono, to a place where the streets do have fucking names. Okay. Um, I want to read some new stuff. 
Um, this is a manuscript I'm working on uh, called Flavor Town, um, as yet unpublished. Um, this is it's 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 just a stack of paper with post-it notes right now. Um, one of the things, surprisingly, I really like about working with Mason Jar Press is that um, both Ian and Mike and I are all um, young fathers. Um, so, like, if one of us just isn't answering emails for a couple days, like, we all get it. It's like, man, you don't want to know what's going on with the sleep. Um, so I'm going to read a couple, uh, a couple dad poems um, as a shout-out to, to the young dads who are my publishers. Um, this is a world premiere. I've never read this poem anywhere before. I'm just so excited to be at Baltimore. I wanted to do something special. Um, it's called Portrait of the Artist as a Young Dad. It's a sonnet, and there's an epigraph from the Talking Heads song, uh, Nothing But Flowers. If this is paradise, I wish I had a lawnmower. Portrait of the Artist as a Young Dad. Okay, so I had to YouTube how to start it, but back in my day, there were a lot more steps. See? Didn't I sound just like a dad there? Just like walking into that store today and saying, I am here to buy this lawnmower. Yes, the red one. And now I'm sold, like a lawnmower. Suburbs, slippers, a reusable shopping bag filled with other reusable shopping bags. I've tasted the Kool-Aid. I am a believer in the sanctity of coming home to a nice lawn, of having a pair of white Nikes stained green, of sweeping clippings off a sidewalk I can call mine. Now that I mention it, right now a glass of Kool-Aid sounds pretty good. The American Kid West. Grass swaddles the plains like a swaddle. Our national anthem is something off a children's album from the library that puts babies to sleep instantly, but only at extreme volume. We eat at chain restaurants because they have parking and car seat slings and enough room to put them next to the table. When our children begin eating solid food, there will be something on those menus for them to eat, perhaps an illustrated cup to take home. Our currency is snacks stuffed into diaper bags alongside accessories and ephemera, changing pads, thermometers, extra keys, outfits, that gift certificate we lost months ago. We strap mirrors to headrests. We are known for our competence and our freezers and our tired faces. Our grocery stores are giant and have parking spaces for expectant and new mothers. The carts warn us not to mount our car seats onto the handles, but we do anyway. We know balance, and we'd catch our children if they ever fell. They don't. Okay, just two more from Flavor Town. Um, Great time. Thank you. Um, this is a short one inspired by my amazing dinner tonight. Um, this is called You Can Take the Kid Out of the Midwest. Sure, we're eating oysters now. Me, hot sauce, she, mignonette. But we both come from Ponderosa families. All those choices, and we both always ended up with the same plate. Me, drumsticks and blue jello. Yellow if they didn't have blue. Her, a pile of ham cubes, drowning in ranch dressing. <laughs> Shout out to back home. Um, one, the, the center section of Flavortown is a crown of sonnets called the Hot Dogger Sonnets that's inspired by the, um, the, the youngsters that Oscar Mayer hires to drive the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile all over the country. Um, they are called Hot Doggers. Um, the, the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile is not the worst social media follow you could do. Um, they make it seem like it's the most fun job in the world. And I, like, I kept tweeting at them. I was like, you need to make me the poet laureate of the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile. And they were like, why don't you sign up to be a hot dogger? I'm like, I don't want to drive it. I just want to write about it. So I went rogue and I wrote the Crown of Sonnets on my own without their approval. Um, this is the first. This is from the middle of the section. Um, 
they make the job seem fun, but it can't possibly be fun to spend that long, a full year in the grocery store parking lots of America. Um, this is called The Hot Dogger's Wish, and the first line is kind of taken from the Oscar Mayer song. Oh, I wish that I could drive through at McDonald's, or Wendy's, or Arby's, or pull into any old car wash, or park in a garage. That laundry wasn't an ordeal. Oh, I wish that I could see out my back window, that I had a back window at all, that I didn't have to overthink every right turn, that I could wear whatever shirt I wanted to, that I could call a full-size box of cereal mine, that I could sleep in the same bed for more than two nights in a row, that I could pull into any parking spot and know I'll fit, that a stranger could approach me without asking me for something, that a stranger could approach me and ask me for something other than a weenie whistle, that I could drive somewhere in a Civic or a Camry, that I could drive anywhere without being so seen. Um, that's kind of my book tour poem, too. This is, uh, I think, the 14th of 20 dates I'm doing for Continental Breakfast. Um, it, it is so fun. I don't mean to say that it's a, a weary thing, um, especially with friendly, great audiences like this. Um, so thank you so much for being here. Thanks to the Maryland State Library for the Blind and Handicapped for having us. Um, what a great room. Thank you to Jamie and Nicole, um, my internet friends who are now real life friends. Um, and, and thank you to, to Mike and Ian and the whole Mason Jar Press team. Um, in my day job, I own a bookstore and I work with a lot of shitty small publishers. And Mason Jar Press is not a shitty small publisher. They do very, very good work and you should be proud to have them here in Baltimore. Um, publishing my first book with them was um, absolutely the right move. All right, this is my last poem, um, and then I think we're going to come, come up here and take questions, so I'm happy to chat with you then or afterwards. Uh, this is Interstate Love Song. It's for Kara. When we get to Cracker Barrel, stiff and cold, you can have the seat closest to the fire and first crack at the peg game. You can even have the third biscuit. At hour 13, I'll do anything to keep you awake and laughing and pointed west. I don't need anything from you except your body in the seat next to mine, going 75. I don't need anything from you except the promise you'll go somewhere else with me whenever we feel like it. Let's play the license plate game. Let's play the alphabet game until we get stuck on J. Let's play the game where America is the board, the mile markers are tokens, the God billboards are bonuses, the roller grill hot dogs are penalties, and we're on the same team beating everyone. Tomorrow, let's take hotel coffee to go and shiver our way through dinosaur world. Fuck flowers. I'll buy you a purple triceratops. Anyone can fall in love in Paris. Thank you so much. Yeah, Danny Kane, everybody. Awesome. Very cool. All right. Yeah, uh, so let's go ahead and have all our authors come on up here. Uh, I'm going to stand here and moderate like a jerk. <laughs> Thank you guys again so much for uh, for all for wonderful readings and for uh, some of you for making the trip. You know, for all of you, yeah. Um, let's try and moderate this just a tiny, tiny bit. Um, how many other authors in the room do we got here? That's a writer. Most of the room. Cool. Awesome. All right. So let's talk. Uh, let's talk some craft a little bit. Yeah. Is everybody down for that? Maybe. Sure. A couple craft questions. Anybody got any of those? Or do I have to pose some first? I can do that. Sure, yes. Um, Nicole, I have a question for you. So 
since you mentioned uh, that you felt like that last part that you read felt a little more like a poem to you rather than fiction, I'm just curious what you would say about um, blending, blending. Let me get another one, and you can finish your question. I'm curious. Oh, there it is. Okay, I'm curious what you would say about blending genres in your writing and potentially how you structurally approached uh, either doing that in the first draft or in revisions. Good question, yeah. Well, Ashley, I don't, is, I don't think not, I, how does it, yes? It should just be oh. picking up, oh. it seems like they're not. Do we talk into it? Do we talk into there it? There you yes. go. Um, I mean, I, I don't really think about blending genres, I mean, the, the act of making a poem feels very, very different to me than writing fiction, which feels very different from writing a play, or, you know, I, like, just the, like, sitting down to do it feels so different, and so character-driven, um, and poems, like, feel like they come from a different place, so... I think, in some ways, though, I like the space on the page, even in fiction, and I like to press enter a lot, um, because then you have 110 pages, and it feels like a novella <laughs> instead of, you know. So um, occasionally, like when I was writing it, I found myself pressing enter and using second person, which made it feel more like a poem. Um, but and just I feel like. Um, I think it's the big, the biggest difference for me is that like feeling of something that's very character driven and story driven, as opposed to um, poems where I, I don't feel that same sort of um, that drive. Like it feels more about language with poems for me. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, other craft questions? I got one. I'm curious to see how you guys pretty much all would answer this from different perspectives. Um, as a, a fiction writer, I'm kind of constantly worried about like how do I get readers to engage with a character, right? You know, like am I crafting a character that's engaging? You know, um, can you speak to that challenge? I guess on your end, you know, uh, even in poetry, I think there's still like a character that you kind of mm -hmm. right, you know, and for creating nonfiction, even more, like, do you worry like, do people are people going to think I'm an asshole and stop reading, or you know, like, you know, is that a fair question? Is that sure. like, understandable? Am I rambling? I can start. I think um, many, many of my poems, many of my poems start with a voice, and like in that way, it's kind of character work, and the the there's me, actual me, is like a varying percentage of the voice in any given poem. Like in the ideal by the customer, that's about 2% me. Um, but in lockdown, it's 80% me. So um, in a way, I wonder, um, it's both harder and easier. Because in a book of poetry, I can, I can just start a new character mm -hmm. every page for 60 pages. And like, I don't have to worry about arc or like maintaining. I think the work of, I can't imagine the work of a novelist. And like, 
like I can invent a voice or a joke and then it's like if I get sick of it or if it runs out it's like the cycle in my mind feels like it's about a poem long so I can't imagine doing it for 250 pages oh you just screw around and then eventually bring it to a close and like it's I, it's I, I love insult novels. to every novel <laughs> I'm sorry I love novels and I think most of what I read is actually novels I was reading um, Elizabeth Strout on the plane who does amazing things with actually formally does amazing things formally but with characters too um so I can't, I can't really imagine doing it more for more than a page or more than the length of a poem. But I do um, envision poetry as character work, especially if your poems like mine have an interest in, in, in kind of the human voice that's yeah. spoken. Good answer. Cole, Jamie, yeah, yeah. I would love to hear all of you. Okay. Um, am I doing my, I'm doing the microphone. I did it. Um, I wish that I had a really thoughtful answer to this question that makes me sound uh, smart and like I work very hard and not like I tricked you all. <laughs> but um, I can't really write in the third person um, because in order for me to come up with a story, I sort of have to, it always starts like with a, with a phrase or a very small idea and then I have to figure out why that would even matter and who it would matter to. And so I have to like climb into a imaginary skin suit. Oh God, this is, why am I saying this? <laughs> uh, I don't know, I just kind of. I can relate to these. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to imagine what it would be like to be the kind of person that would say the sentence that popped into my head and how that would carry through. And um, it's, much more interesting to try to be another person than to try to be a functional human adult. And I think that's really what I'm doing. It's just an exercise in not having to be myself. Because I do that every day and it's exhausting. It's exhausting just listening to me. No, no, that's wonderful. Yeah, I don't have, I don't have a really good answer. I just, I don't know. That's a great answer. No, that's a very I, I honest answer, I think, if anything, yeah. Yeah, I love that because I'm trying and it's weird with fiction because I'm like, this is fiction. This is not, you know. And I keep saying it over and over, like, and like writing it like a novella is a piece of fiction that is. Well, I, I also do feel, um, and not to leave you out, Danny, as a male poet, but I do think that if you are a woman writing in the first person, people assume that you are writing about yourself. Mm -hmm. And I almost never write, you'll know when I'm writing about myself because I will tell you something stupid, like how I eat salad with my hands half the time. And mm. none of the, it's easier than force. <laughs> um, but, but when I'm writing from a character, then I, I, I'm doing things thoughtfully. But I do feel like there is this, um, this constant motivation to, if you are, especially like, if you, especially if you are, a woman writing about a female character, people are like, oh, that's you. And um, and it isn't, and it is, and I think that um, it's easier to, to sort of believe that somebody is writing hugely from their own experience for people that do not just have like characters running through their head uh, than it is to believe that somebody got in front of a public library and said skin suit as a way to describe the actual process. <laughs> Still an accurate description. I'm going to go and find it. Yeah. I'm just taking this whole. Questions? Other questions? More? Ah, yeah. Mr. Andrew Klein, yeah. 
Baltimore's own version of Dapper Dan. <laughs> oh, it was on. Oh. Uh, but they should be able, they're supposed to be um, completely accessible, so you shouldn't have to hold it up, but it just seems like the pickup has been weird on them tonight when you're all talking up there. Oh, testing, testing. Is this working? No. Okay. Um, well, Can we switch with this guy? Uh, uh, you mentioned uh, running a independent bookstore dealing with um, independent publish like little publishers. Some of them really suck. Mm -hmm. Mason Jar is great. That is not surprising that Mason Jar is great, but I was hoping you and actually all three of you could maybe talk a little bit about being a writer working with small independent publisher and what that's like in the writing scape today kind of thing. Sure. Yeah, that's a, a good question. question. Um, and I, my, my writing experience with any publisher I've worked with or any, I've had universal luck working with editors. And so I can send you, like if you basically look at my, my website and anywhere I've published, like I recommend all those people because they've all been great. But from the, the bookstore side, what we see a lot of is publishers that um, think all the work of putting a book out is getting it printed in a box. Um, and that's just when the work begins. And like I've got, um, this week, uh, this is over the next seven days, over the next six days, I have five more dates on the East Coast. I don't know anybody out here. I didn't know Jamie or Nicole. I didn't know anybody at the, the Pratt Library. And like these guys set that up for me, basically. Um, and we, we've been working on it for months to put together this tour. And those are contacts I didn't have. And like Mason Jar, like a press this size can't afford to fly me out, but I worked it out. And I just said, I can get out here for a week. Um, set me up with as many days as you can. And like that's a shit ton of work. The book is beautiful. Ian's cover design is, is amazing. And the, it's just, I, I'm so happy with how it came out. Um, so like, so many books, so many small publishers just fail at design and they think it's like, if you can do Microsoft Word, you can design a book cover and that's just not true. And I hate to say it, but coming from a bookstore, a book, like a cover does sell a book. Um, and like a book, an ugly book won't sell. Um, so you need to make sure someone on a small press can actually design a book. Um, and really, I think if I were to sum it up, just make sure that publisher is willing to, to do work for you throughout this, the lifespan of the book. Um, from the point where you, they accept the manuscript, to editing the manuscript, to printing it, to tour dates, to marketing, to getting reviews and, and publicity attention. And like Mason Jar, I like everybody on Mason Jar has day jobs. They live, you know, however many states away from me, but they still busted their asses for this book. Um, and that's what makes a good independent publisher. And, and so many publishers will just get a box of 250 books and never do anything with it. Um, and that's, I think, where, where independent publishers and independent books fail. Mm. Yeah, I know, um, I. I've only published poetry manuscripts, um, so my experience with Masonger with a novella has been really exciting because you actually have edits, you know? Like poetry, you don't want to have edits, which is great. Um, but with Masonger, I mean, they keep coming back and they're like, and more edits, more edits. And like, you use the word up too much. You use too many exclamation points, you know? And I've become like, you know, hyper aware of like my, I, I used, I, I think I had two adverbs in it and I'm so embarrassed that they were pointed out to me. Um, How dare you. I, I know. <laughs> but so it's been, it's been a really, really fun experience to have that sort of um, like intense editing experience. 
and the books are gorgeous. Um, I I will say like one thing I always hope for is that I'll find a small press who I can like who will continue to publish me, you know, and it's not just like a one-off thing, you know. So um, I feel like that relationship. I have friends who have like their publisher who you know they just always send their book to, and maybe they end up breaking with them to go for a bigger press, like you know, much later. But um, I, I feel like that sort of relationship um, can be really rewarding <coughs> or for presses to have with their, with their writers to publish multiple books by them. Um, but yeah, but it's been great. I, I have never published a book before, so I don't have a lot to compare it to. I'm still not totally sure this isn't an elaborate prank on me that you have all been paid to help, you know, participate in. And thank you for doing this work. And you look really attentive. And um, if they are paying you in money, you should ask for more. <laughs> if they're paying you in food, bring Tupperware. Um, but I will say that um, before they were my publishers, we were friends. And we were friends because... Uh, Michael Taylor was like, I'm doing a reading in Philly and I don't know anyone, can you help? You know my friend Dave. And uh, I was like, yeah, probably. And then I went and I heckled him, a person I had never met in person. Um, and that's how I make friends. Very aggressive, terrible. Um, but I think that the thing that uh, Mason Jar does the best, aside from elaborate pranks on me, um, is the way that they uh, like actually like have a relationship with you and it's not just like, oh, we think this is pretty good, we're gonna do it. Can you just uh, sign this? It's like, here's how we wanna do it. They're very thoughtful in the way that they like present suggestions. When they have questions, they ask them in a way that actually, that doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like you've failed. It feels like they have opened up a new window for you in part of the text that maybe you hadn't seen yourself. Um, and, when, you know, like I, the same week that uh, they announced, like the day after they announced they were publishing my book, my grandfather died. Um, and they were very kind about me being like, hey, guess what? I'm not making that first deadline. You, you guys, I can't do it. Um, and instead of being like, you signed a contract, get real, they were just like, take your time. We can make up the time later. Um, in a way that was so thoughtful that the crushing guilt I would have felt in disappointing them uh, really motivated me to get back on my, my schedule despite um, having like the weird, one of the weirdest weeks of my life uh, happen there. Uh, sorry to bring everybody down. I'm gonna stop talking. <laughs> we hope not. I just wanted to add one thing, too, about Mason Jar that I love. So the fact that they're putting these three books out together, um, and it was really weird hearing Jamie read because I felt like the guy at the Slurpee store, I mean, you call them ICs, but there's also like all this change sliding across the counter. Like It felt like eerie to read it um, because of the different sort of ways that they speak to each other. Um, so I'm so excited to read the whole thing. But I also love that they're putting the three novellas out together because like, it makes it a little less embarrassing. <laughs> you know? Like, it's not like, buy my novella! It's like, oh, look, a box 
set that will, you know, complete your summer reading needs. Yeah. Look at all my new friends and how they are, so maybe give us money. Uh. <laughs> cool. Thank you. Um, I have a just. Pretend for, let's say, the next 45 seconds or so each, uh, you're being interviewed by your favorite person, right? Person you, you know, you all go on those writer head trips where like, what if I make it? And then they're asking me the questions, right? Is that, is that just me? Am I just a narcissist? <laughs> no, okay, yeah. Uh, so sit yourself in that scenario. What is your, uh, your favorite writer tangent that you would like to go on in this moment? Is that a fair question to ask? Hmm. Curveballs. Like if it's me, right? I would. <laughs> what are you working on, Justin? <laughs> I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> oh, thank you, Sid. Um, well, let me get to these guys first, and I'll answer that question. Is that cool? <laughs> Thank you. I, pre I love you, Andrew. Yeah. Answers? Anybody got answers? I, uh, I spent the, the first answer. part of the, the daydreaming headspace about who the, the person would be. And so I didn't know <laughs> oh. <laughs> the left turn of the question um, got me by surprise. I'm still not sure I have an answer. Like, I have lots of, of secret writer thoughts that I would never post on Twitter and it would require, like, buying me several beers to get me to. And I don't think Challenge I'm going to share them on okay. the podcast. Yeah. Um, I, I, I would love, um, and I think it kind of, the work kind of speaks for it. Um, I would, I, I, whenever I get a chance, I love to talk about the fact that like poetry is allowed to be funny. Um, there are, there are many different, la any landscape is deserving of poetry in the right hands. And so there's nothing unpoetic about a Walmart. Um, but it see, and it's like, of course, I'm at risk of setting up a straw man argument. And there are people who do write great poetry about these spaces and who do write great funny poetry, but I would just love to see the balance. I would love to see more poems that make me laugh out loud. And like a lot of funny poetry, you go like, hmm, hmm. Like oh, that's a that funny a clever poetry thought. reaction, right? Yeah. But like actual like laugh out loud poetry, I think is important and can be just as serious or hardworking as any oh, other yeah. kind of poetry. Um, and like the, I still think poetry, I mean, for centuries, of course, poetry has had this really strong relationship with what's commonly called the natural world. Um, mm -hmm. And like that's cool. It's obviously not for me. And so I would love to see, uh, like once I picked up a copy of Poetry Magazine and I sat down and I was like, all right, how many chain restaurants are in this thing? And there was one mention of one McDonald's in like um, in 100 pages of poetry. And like, I don't know, it's, we all... That's like that's the American landscape. Hell yeah! See, here I go. So it is a tangent. So that's boom, what I'm talking boom, about. hit it. There you go. Yeah. Um, do you, do you, go ahead. Um, I guess. Uh, so I think that I'm gonna just jump off something I randomly said before because that's how tangents work. Um, but I think the tangent I would go off on would be about uh, the fact that a lot of women writers and writers of color and writers who come from more marginalized groups. It's just presumed that you're writing about yourself and you don't have an imagination. Because, and if you are writing about things that are upsetting or traumatic, then it's because like that has personally hurt you deeply. And of course, like racism and sexism and violence have hurt people deeply. But writing about that is not just you're not just like putting events to paper. It's not journalism. Like you're interpreting your experience into your fiction. And I think that so often the, the greater public forgets that 
marginalized people are probably more interesting and imaginative because they have to live in this fucking world and survive it. And so I think that I would keep doing this about the fact that I think a lot of people are not granted the freedom to like be fiction writers. Mm-hmm. And in the way that so many people are like, well, why don't you why don't you write a memoir? Why don't you talk about your trauma? Mm. And like if that's what you want to turn into your art, I'm not saying you shouldn't, but I also don't think that people should have to like flay themselves before the reading public just because like they grew up in a certain neighborhood or their skin is a certain color or they are of a certain gender or not of a certain gender. It's just, it's not, you're discounting so much of the human experience by just asking somebody to like tell their specific nonfiction story instead of letting them like create a world like they want to. Oh yeah, oh yeah, we, we, we make pain into profit, you know what I mean? Yeah, um, and I, I really think that like, there. There are, of course, like beautiful memoirs about horrible things, but most people who are trying to write about these things are not like just listing facts about the sad things that have happened in their lives. They're translating the pain into something different, and I don't think a lot of people give them as much credit for that oh, yeah. as they ought to and as they've earned. I completely agree. I think um, it has a weird, at least maybe this maybe is the social media side of it that I observe, uh, is that it tends to sort of create this quest for who has the ultimate fucked up story, you know? Right, and, and then we anoint that one voice as like, well, that person, they've gone through the most shit out here. You get to be the sad, hurt person of this topic. And instead of like having these things like break open conversations and allow people to be more comfortable talking about things, and I think... Fiction gives you a lot more room to like to think about what has happened to you than to hear somebody else's direct story anyway. And so if I think that the way that people interpret their experience should not just automatically be like, you shouldn't just be asked to write a memoir or nothing. And you shouldn't be expected to be like, oh, this story is really about me. Like maybe it is, but why do you have to say that it is? Or why do you have to qualify fiction with like your personal experiences it's unfair to the people writing it and it's lazy of the people who expect that as readers when the yes. twitter version of this I, story breaks it's just going to say jamie fountain hates yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm so sorry i didn't mean to talk cut over you nicole i'm so sorry oh no no i just um i totally i'm i'm, I'm having many parallel thoughts because I'm always like, oh great, my husband's gonna leave me because I've written this. <laughs> you know, seriously, I'm like, I terrified that he's gonna be like, okay, that's it. <laughs> you know, and then, but it doesn't occur to me while I'm writing it. I'm like, right, right, right. It's like so great. I'm so excited. And then, um, like, the minute I find out it's getting published, then I look at it and the like, people are giving people blow jobs and all these things are happening that I'm like, oh no, that seems like perhaps not the best choice that that character made. Um, mm-hmm. You know, but then I'm like, it's fiction, come on. So I don't, I think that's somehow related. Um, I mean, I think my biggest thing would be like just to write and write and write and write and then you can think later about whether you should be like embarrassed or ashamed or disappointed or you know 
I mean, which you shouldn't be. Hopefully, hopefully you won't be. But it, it just never, it never occurs to me until the moment. I was writing this, um, I have these short stories about this guy I work with. They're all called Leor and I. And I was just writing them, writing them, and I thought they were so, and then one day, I printed it out at work, and he was like, what are you doing? I was like, oh, should I not be writing stories about you every day? It's the other Leor. That's phenomenal. That's amazing. I disagree. Some people should be uh, disappointed and embarrassed and ashamed. If your name is Tao Lin, you know, like, feel that way about everything you write. Hopefully never do it again. All right, uh, we're going to wrap it up here. Anybody got any last ones? All right. Um, thank you all very, 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 very much. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. And honor to hear you, all. Hope you guys had a great time. Yeah. Thank you all very much for coming out. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.